welcome to the Dementia Researcher Podcast, brought to you by University College London and the NIHR in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Welcome to the Dementia Researcher Podcast. I'm Dr. Amanda Heselgrave, and I'm a senior researcher at University College London. It's my pleasure to be guest hosting this week's show. Normally, I can be found at the UK Dementia Research Institute Biomarker Factory, and I work out how best to accurately identify dementia biomarkers from blood samples. But today, I'll be doing something a little different. I'm going to be joined by two people who've got new and clever ways to look at the challenge of biomarkers for Alzheimer's disease and they're both probably trying to put me out of work although I think that's not going to happen. My wonderful guests have got some high-tech amazing new approaches to diagnosing Alzheimer's disease and other dementias so in this show we're going to discuss these approaches, their work and how they might be applied. So let's meet the guests. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Catherine Baumborn and Dr. George Stottart. Did I say that correctly, George? You did. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Okay, so let's do some introductions. And Catherine, would you like to go first, please? Just tell us a bit about yourself. Sure, thank you. Um, So I'm really fortunate to serve as the head of clinical operations and partnerships at a company called ReadySpec. Uh, So the company is located in uh, or headquartered in Toronto, uh, Canada, and the company is an AI medical imaging company where we're developing algorithms for the detection of neurodegenerative diseases, specifically Alzheimer's, um, based on a very simple eye exam that leverages existing imaging infrastructure in eye care settings. Um, And so the focus of my work is on the clinical validation of this technology, uh, where we compare it to clinical gold standards. So things like uh, PET scans or lumbar puncture, cerebral spinal fluid analysis. Okay, thank you very much for that. And then George, can I come to you? Yeah, hi, I'm George Stoller. I'm a cognitive neuroscientist. Uh, I work at the University of Bath and my research is on developing functional biomarkers of uh, dementia. So using, primarily using EEG to try and uh, yeah, improve the sensitivity of our measures of brain function. Um, and so I've been working on uh, a technique known as fastball for a, a few years now, which is a passive and implicit measure of cognitive function. Okay. No, that's perfect, because we're going to come on to that in a bit more detail very soon. But first of all, I guess we've been talking about biomarkers. I need to kind of set the scene, really, for why this is important. Now... In previous times, or I mean, even now, if people have uh, problems or worries, suspicions that they might be getting some kind of dementia or Alzheimer's disease, the, normally they'll go and see their GP, um, or perhaps they'll try and ignore it because we all know that actually there are no, um, there are still currently no um, really tested, tried and tested cures for the disease. So. It's, there's always been a bit of a stigma with being um, diagnosed with a dementia and people are quite worried about that. But so the person finally decides they're going to go to their GP and then they will get 
hopefully passed on to a secondary kind of medical care, like a neurologist or a psychiatrist, to for further tests. And these tests, they might be um, brain scans, uh, they might be cognitive testing, or they could be something like a lumbar puncture. We do use lumbar punctures to look for biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease. But um, this is very much, I think, depends probably on where you live um, and the access to healthcare. It's not always equitable. Um, but also, the diagnosis isn't that accurate. It doesn't, for example, diagnose between different types of dementia. That's not something that's um, readily done or easily done. And also, by the time someone actually goes to their care provider with symptoms of a neurodegenerative disease such as a dementia, they've already got that disease and it's not likely that you'll be able to have much effect on its progression. So what we need are different biomarkers, earlier biomarkers and more accurate biomarkers able to differentiate between the different dementias. So I think that that's really important. And so and so we need lots of people coming at this from many different angles. And I think that a small example of that is what we've got here today. And so I think now we'll move to Catherine, who's going to tell us a bit more in detail about your research and, and how, this, how this fits in. Sure, thank you. So the work that's being done by ReadySpec uh, to bring this type of technology to, to the market, and, and by that I mean our uh, retinal scan um, for detection of early uh, Alzheimer's disease, is actually technology that has a deep history of development uh, that started more than a decade ago at the Center for Drug Design at the University of Minnesota. And so this, uh, the researchers there, Dr. Robert Vince and Swati Moore, uh, developed an earlier version of this uh, retinal hyperspectral imaging, which is what we use. Uh, and this was to measure early changes in soluble amyloid for an amyloid target therapeutic that they were actually trying to develop. So they were trying to see if there were uh, ways that they could measure the change of the therapeutic. And they, they invented this approach uh, for diagnostic purposes, sort of uh, out of necessity for evaluating their therapeutic. And so at ReadySpec, we licensed that initial technology and have gone on to further develop it and incorporate uh, the machine learning and artificial intelligence methodologies as well. And so what we essentially do is combine retinal imaging with novel tissue spectroscopy methods in order to identify the optical signature of Alzheimer's disease. Um, and these are the specific changes that are measurable through the eye. And so because the eye can be imaged at micron level resolution, our hyperspectral imaging enables measurement of many biophysical, biochemical properties, um, such as specific proteins. So things like amyloid and tau, we can see signatures of cell degeneration, microvascular changes, and other spectral and spatial biomarkers of the eye that we can see in individuals who have been confirmed to have the pathologic uh, signs of Alzheimer's disease. Um, so we compare these against clinical gold standards of amyloid PET or CSF, or cerebral spinal fluid. And um, we use these gold standards to ensure that when we're validating this technology that we are, um, we can have a, a high degree of confidence that what we're detecting is sound. Um, and what we do through this analysis is we really take these incredibly rich images 
and we apply our machine learning and AI driven techniques to classify the raw data that we capture into broad categories. Um, and so these are then used to perform the, the detection of the specific retinal biomarkers. So in essence, from a patient perspective, um, you know, you come into an eye clinic or, or a clinic where this, um, uh, it's called a fundus camera is, uh, you sit down, you have a couple images of your eye taken similar to what you would have in your eye doctor's office. Um, but what's different is that we have software that's working in the back end to capture this additional data. Um, we replace the, the normal sensor in a fundus camera. So normally you would have three color channels, red, green, and blue. Uh, and we capture those plus over 100 additional channels. So the patient experience isn't any different, but we capture this extra information and apply the software that allows us to compute a score and to indicate whether or not that person is um, uh, likely to have uh, the same sort of protein uh, composition as someone who has Alzheimer's disease. Um, and the reason we're able to do this is because the retina, uh, which is the back of the eye, is directly connected to the central nervous system and shares nervous tissues and vasculature with the brain. So it's a really wonderful way um, to, to be able to understand what's happening in the brain in a very non-invasive and simple way. Okay, so that gives me a question. The first one would be, is this something that is already in the, you call it eye doctor? Offices, I would say opticians, but would it be something that they already have, like today? Be yeah, there? that's a great question. So the cameras that we use, the fundus cameras, yes, absolutely. Uh, what's different about what we do is there's there's a, a different sensor, so the hyperspectral sensor. Um, so we work with a wonderful company um, called Topcon, and they have a, a very, very significant footprint in optician clinics, eye doctor clinics. Um, here in Canada, we have optometrists and ophthalmologists. Um, and and so we're able to, to leverage that existing footprint. Um, so doctors don't necessarily have to buy a whole new camera. We just add on um, our sensor and software. Okay. And then do, does this technology allow you to pick up an Alzheimer's signature before, you know, early, before anything else? Or would you suddenly pick up this on someone and then have to tell them? That's a there's great, great questions there. So I'll, I'll answer the, the first one first, and then we can chat about disclosure in just a moment. So relative to the early detection, um, yes. Um, so we have completed some work just very recently that was supported by the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation. And um, we were looking at uh, whether or not we could detect this the signature of um, the proteins of Alzheimer's disease were specific to amyloid um, prior to symptom onset. Um, and we, both in sort of clinical validation and in tissue uh, samples of um, matched uh, retina and brain um, tissues from those sort of throughout the continuum of the disease. Um, and I'm very pleased to say that, yes, we were able to detect it before symptom onset in, in both instances. So um, it, it does have uh, very promising um, uh, capabilities for future screening purposes on a, a wide scale. Um, and you asked a very important question also about disclosure and sort of what does this mean if we're um, detecting this in eye care settings um, where folks don't normally have sort of complex brain health discussions. Um, and so that's actually that's something that we're exploring right now through um, another project that's supported by the Davos Alzheimer's Collaborative, where we actually have a system deployed 
um, here in Toronto at an optometry clinic. And um, essentially folks who are 65 and older, which is the age here in Canada where routine uh, screening is um, recommended and covered by the government, um, they, when folks come in, they're asked an extra screening question during the history taking process to, about whether they've noticed significant changes in their memory. And if so, then they're invited to have a scan. So we're actually testing this in the real world in eye care settings. Um, for now, we're not providing results. Uh, we're not having the optometrist provide the results, but we are referring to primary care for that discussion. Um, and so we're not, we're not trying to completely disrupt, but we are using it as a way to facilitate the measurement. And then the conversations happen um, with, with someone's general practitioner afterwards. Hmm. I suppose when you ask that question, this is just me and a bugbear I have, about significant memory problems, that's too late, isn't it? In, in my opinion, that is already yeah. too late. And yeah. so, yeah, but that's, you know, neither here nor there. It's, a re it's what makes, I think, the neurodegenerative diseases so difficult is that yeah. they're there and then you can't do anything about them. So it's the, I guess, what will make it easier is when drugs like lecanemab are proved to be useful and safe and you can take them from a younger age that that would be the key sorry i realize i've like hijacked that with my no with my ideas no and i feel like no, no. we need to we need to bring george in now so he can explain a bit about his technology and how that yeah, would make things different can i just ask catherine a question first mm. um so if if amyloid, if there's a sort of cascade or a, a, um, a, a definite process of amyloid accumulation through the brain, you know, it doesn't arrive equally across the brain on, on a, any particular day, right? We, we have areas of the brain that are known to aggregate amyloid early. Where does the retina sit in that, in that kind of process? So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, and so what we're seeing, at least from the, the results of the, the work that was supported by the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation, is that we see an increase in um, the soluble amyloid sort of up to the, I'll call it sort of intermediate um, stage of, of what we would see in brain um, amyloid aggregation. So it's, it's certainly in the earlier to mid um, phases of, of that buildup. Um, and that, yeah. that also is likely because we're looking into the, the soluble versus the plaques. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. Is, it as, is it as good at detecting tau and other markers as well, or is it, is it kind of better at picking up amyloid? It's a great question. So um, we, we don't have the, the results public yet, um, but uh, our, our team has been working very, very diligently on um, uh, both total tau and phosphorylated tau comparators. And uh, while I can't share the sensitivity and specificity, though I do know them, um, they, they're very, very promising. So I, I will say amyloid is certainly not a catch-all. It's not the only measure we need. Um, what we're building towards is even beyond amyloid and tau, uh, looking at things like TDP and other types of markers that we know are important in neurodegenerative diseases. And we're you know, looking to really develop uh, a single user experience where we can provide a profile of, of scores for each of these uh, markers. So uh, certainly not limited to amyloid and um, the hyperspectral retinal imaging is, is really quite a powerful tool for, for elucidating optical signatures of, 
of various proteins and um, um, underlying biological processes within the eye, which give us an indication of what's happening in the brain. Yeah. That could be amazing yeah. for differentiation if that could work for the other things like TDP. That could be. The, yeah. that, that's our goal. So, so far, the, the evidence is um, indicating that, you know, we, we may have some promising uh, options here. We're, we're starting with amyloid, but, but that's certainly what we're looking towards in the future. Okay. So, now, George, you can't get away with it any longer. You have to <laughs> research. Yeah, happy. That's one thing research is always very good at, right? Talking about their own research. Um, yeah, so... Uh, as I said at the top, um, I'm a psychologist. I'm within psychology. I specialize in cognitive neuroscience side of psychology. And I spent my PhD using EEG to try and look at um, non-memory related uh, signatures of, de of dementia. So uh, my supervisor at the time was, was looking at vision and visual attention. And so I was trained to use EEG in sort of traditional ways. Um, things like uh, event-related potentials. These are measures that we, we can uh, take um, and they reflect kind of the brain's responses to particular uh, stimuli and events in time. And I spent four or five years testing dementia patients um, with these techniques to try and see whether there was anything more sensitive um, by using it, uh, whether EEG could be a more sensitive marker of certain cognitive deficits than, and it's always we're comparing to something else, com more sensitive than pen and paper tests. So our traditional neuropsych measures of cognitive function. Um, and uh, I learned a lot and hit a lot of barriers. And by the time I finished my PhD, I couldn't really see that there was, I couldn't see the way in which I'd been trained to use EEG ever translating through to being a clinical tool. This, the, the sensitivity of these measures was just, it was never there. And while you could learn interesting things about groups of patients uh, versus controls, for example, the, the reliability of these measures at an individual subject level were always terrible. Um, you always had to record for up to an hour worth of stimulation. Um, you then had to do, go through lots of reductive averaging processes and so on. So there was lots in the signal processing that just didn't really add up. And I'm not, um, I'm not a great kind of theorist. I'm not smart enough to be that type of academic. I always wanted to, to translate what more intelligent people than me <laughs> discovered into viable clinical tools. That, that's definitely what I got a sense of in my PhD. I, I saw this huge gap between the way we used EEG in the lab and the way it was being used in hospitals. So the, the, the way EEG is used diagnostically doesn't look an awful lot different from it from the 1970s, I don't think, in most neurology clinics at the moment. It's, it's, there is this massive kind of chasm between experimental EEG and clinical EEG. So I saw that as a gap, and I finished my PhD thinking, well, there's all these barriers to conventional approaches, and so I spent a few years as a postdoc trying different, uh, different ways, different uh, techniques, and then in 2015, I went to a conference um, in Leipzig and at a very, you know, end of the day, poorly attended poster session. I came across this poster um, by an academic, uh, a French or well, Belgian academic, 
um, called Bruno Rossillon, and he was presenting this technique called fast periodic visual stimulation. And it was a way of using EEG, and specifically a way of presenting stimuli um, with EEG, that seemed to solve all of the problems that I'd been hitting in the lab. And it, what these fast periodic visual stimulation experiments they had done had shown was that if you presented stimuli in, uh, in a very specific way, so a fixed periodic rates so of flashing images of stimuli, and you embedded rare novel images or different images within that stimulus train and recorded EEG at the same time, Using that technique and working purely in the, in the frequency domain as opposed to the time domain, um, so it's a technical difference in the way you're using the EEG data, but it made a fundamental difference to how quickly you could get reliable measures. He was claiming that using this technique you could get significantly stable responses from individual subjects in, in minutes, in completely passive tasks, that reflected, in his case, it was reflecting face processing. That was the particular cognitive function that he was working on. So to me, as an experimental kind of EEG person, this was a method that could give us a measure of how well a brain was doing a task, but it could do it quickly, it could do it passively, and it could do it with all the signal-to-noise ratio benefits that you would need if you were ever going to use something like that in clinic. So that really kind of caught my attention. Um, and, uh, but at the time, it was he had about two or three papers and they were all on face processing. Um, now face processing isn't really a cognitive function that drops off too badly in dementia. So it's a, it's a neat tool, but it's not right for dementia. Um, that's not a cognitive function we need to measure in the early stages. So I came back to the UK from that conference and thought, can I adapt this to measure any cognitive function that might be useful for dementia? And so that's what I've spent since 2015, that's what I've been doing. So I started small, I started with memory, semantic memory, um, and I've built up over time a battery of tests that all use the same approach, um, but to measure different cognitive functions. And my ultimate sort of end goal is an equivalent battery that look, that covers the same bases, cognitive bases, as something like the mini mental state exam or the Adam Brooks cognitive exam, these general catch-all cognitive um, neuropsych exams, but that we could do in minutes and passively. And so the most success I've had, or the thing that's probably the most for, most developed, is a recognition memory version of this task called Fastball. And the way Fastball works is you see um, a few images, uh, up to eight images, um, presented on screen. You don't do anything. Um, you simply watch the images. And then they are embedded in an image stream that subsequently appears, where lots of images flash up very quickly on screen. Nearly all of them you haven't seen before, but occasionally these previously seen images pop up. And hopefully, if your uh, medial temporal lobe is working as it should, um, you'll get a little recognition flash uh, to those images. Your brain will implicitly, quickly go, I've seen that before. And it's that function that drops out in early Alzheimer's disease. And so what we've been able to show is using that technique, 
in two minutes in a completely passive task where the subject gets no task instruction, provides no response, either behaviorally or verbally. We can measure their recognition memory. And um, we've, we've shown that this response drops right out in Alzheimer's disease patients, and more recently in mild cognitive impairment patients as well. Um, so yeah, so that's the core. Can you, with that recognition one, do you think that you can, you could, define an AD and a MCI, you've got a clear enough cutoff to do that? We can, with, with our current Alzheimer's disease data, and there's small sample sizes, yeah. so there's a heavy caveat on it, but with, with our pilot Alzheimer's data, comparing Alzheimer's patients versus controls, we can get a classification accuracy of 92% okay. using that recognition. Okay. Um, um, yeah. And how long does it take to put the the mm. um, head on? You know what I mean. Depends how fancy your EEG equipment is. And so there's a really broad range these days. When I did my PhD, there was there was lab-based uh, EEG, very expensive to buy, took a long time to put on, got you great data, but was not a easily usable tool. In the last ten years, the more mobile. Uh, simpler systems have come through and we're, we're on the verge now of really wearable EEG. Okay. Uh, that's where a lot of the product development and kind of a lot of companies are, are moving towards is, is really simple, low-level wearable EEG that you could pop in your ear or wear on a, on a headband. Um, so really low profile, uh, you can wear while you sleep or, or wherever. So there's a real range. And if you use one of those low, sim uh, low burn simple headsets, yeah. it is minutes. And so I know that you're kicking off this study in a few weeks. I know this because I'm going to come. Can, can we try it out when we come? Like, will you have yes, it there? Will yes, you yeah. 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 So, um, yeah. So what you're talking about is, um, well... <laughs> The contracts aren't signed yet, so I can't actually say who's oh. funding it and who's involved. <laughs> but that's okay. I can say something's going to happen. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, we're we're on the we're on the cusp of starting a really large scale clinical validation of fastball using exactly one of these low low burden, easy to use headsets. Okay. Um, yeah. That's great. I so you so you've got the recognition here. There there yes. are going to be other aspects. Yeah. Of cognition that you yeah. develop in tests for at the moment i guess yeah absolutely so it's it's very well set up obviously to to measure vision and visual attention so those are two okay. bases that we're, we're trying to cover quite comprehensively because they're also a lot of use for other neurological diseases as well yeah um so okay. there could be opportunities to use those in other degenerative disorders um memory language vision and attention we have versions of the task for the only one that is not very well set very well suited to is anything that requires executive what psychologists call executive function right. and so that means doing a task so remembering instructions and or providing a response or, or decision making because the nature of the task means stimuli have to be presented very quickly multiple images per second and so you don't have the time in that to, to do uh, you know, discriminate, say, between yeah. two stimuli or, or make a decision on any stimuli. 
Okay, so this is something that would work alongside other tests, but potentially yes. making those tests quicker and easier because I know that cognitive testing can be quite lengthy. Mm -hmm. Or it, it yeah, might be that the people I know who do research call them in for a whole day of tests and it sounds yeah, like quite absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, okay. it, it does take a long time and there are, like, I don't anticipate this ever being, I don't think, I think it's very unlikely that any biomarker yeah. will be the silver bullet and there will just be one. It will be a combination of, of, of the best things that make it through this, you know, the, the next yeah. 10, 15 years worth of research and development. Um, but this will, what, my hope for this is that it could, to some extent, replace lengthy neuropsychological testing in situations and environments where um, you don't have the time or resources to do it. Yeah. Um, and, and because it's, um, it requires no comprehension of the task or response, it means it's completely independent of language, education and culture. Okay, yeah. And yeah, that, that could be really useful. So if you wanted to test, um, you know, in countries with less well-funded healthcare systems, yeah. um, EEG is cheap and this you know, you could use this test equitably um, across populations, in theory. haven't tested that yet, but in theory. How easy is it to interpret the results from it? Or do you need to be, I don't know, uh, what do you need to be to interpret the results? Well, you do need to be a neurophysiologist, really, to, 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 to take the raw data. But we're, what we hope to do in the project that's coming up by working with a tech company that does a similar thing to what Catherine's company do, is okay. put a lot of smart processing okay. and AI behind the tech. Behind the tech yeah. So that you remove the need for someone like me in the room, and yeah. instead you just provide a clinician or a healthcare technician with a score. Oh, so I feel like I'm the only person here who's not using AI or about to. <laughs> Well, I, know, I don't know the first thing about it, but yeah, again, people cleverer than me do. I feel I might become defunct soon, except that, except that you guys all keep asking us to come and validate your work. So I yes, think we're, right. we're okay for a while yet, I think. Yeah? Yeah. I'm just going to take my job yeah. away immediately, yeah? No, 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 no. Yeah. Okay, so that was all really, really interesting, and it's good to hear about the different strands that go up to make, you know, all of what we do, good. Um, but I suppose we should now ask just a few like nice questions, such as, such as, who inspires you, or what inspired you to, to the work in the dementia field that you do? Um, Catherine, first. Thank you. Um, so on a personal level, uh, I really appreciate a very complex problem. Just it, it's what drove me as a, a scientist back when I focused exclusively on that. Um, and it still motivates me here. Um, I do have some personal connections um, with loved ones. So I've seen what the disease can look like. Um, and even, you know, I, I'm, I'm seeing people that seem younger and younger, and maybe that's just because I'm getting older and older. But um, you know, the number of, of folks that I, I know and love that are impacted by this disease, both um, with the diagnosis and um, as a caregiver, um, 
you know, it, it really motivates me to wake up every day very early, start uh, very long days and remain focused on bringing accessible, scalable, accurate, uh, easy diagnostics uh, to the market and, and to support other champions who are working on therapeutics. Um, so it's, it's deeply personal for me. Okay, thank you very much. And George? Yeah, I think um, initially my inspiration were my two PhD supervisors. So um, I, I didn't come to them with a, uh, a predisposition to want to work in dementia. It was uh, my supervisor, a lady called Andrea Tails, who's now a professor in Swansea. And um, she was just explaining how EEG work with Alzheimer's patients. And it just it seemed fascinating. I was always interested in biological psychology and neurodegenerative disease. Um, and that just seemed like a really worthwhile thing to be spending my working kind of time on. Then as I, and, and the other supervisor was, was a lady called Nina Casanina, who was, who taught me how to use EEG and was, it's just incredibly smart. And, you know, I, I'm very lucky with my two supervisors, they really kind of inspired me. But then as I spent more time in the dementia research field, uh, it just reinforced um, that that desire to keep working in here. Um, and then as time progresses, like nearly everybody, eventually someone in your family develops it. And so, yeah, I've seen, I've seen uh, you know, close family members develop and, and die from, you know, different forms of dementia. And yeah, that, that certainly motivates you. Um, but so does working for, uh, kind of face-to-face -face with patients as well. Um, the one thing, the one upside to working, working in a, with what can be a very de devastating disease is you do see, or I, I certainly saw some you know, very, very heartwarming sides of human kind of partnerships, I suppose. So whenever I would test people, they would nearly always come with their partners. And you would see for somebody who, who had real short-term memory problems and uh, would repeat themselves endlessly and get stuck in verbal kind of repetition loops, ask the same question 30 times in five minutes. You would see their partners demonstrate just the patience of saints. Like they, and that was kind of really, really lovely to see. You see this kind of, these couples that have been together for 50, 60 years and the patience and the tolerance they have. Um, they never lost their temper. They never. There was never a crossword. They always just answered the same question again, even though they'd just been asked it twenty nine times previously. Oh, I think sometimes actually, like I like to remember that the samples that we get are from people because sometimes mm -hmm. it's a step away from it. And so yeah, I sure. like whenever I go to a conference and there's a, a real life, so someone will come in who is living with dementia and speak. Mm -hmm. It's always a like, yeah, yeah, that's why we do what we do. Yeah. That is why we're here. So, so that's really nice. Otherwise, they just become acronyms, don't they? It's, it's yeah. AD and BLB. Yeah, yeah, AD, and, yeah. CSF. And, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I just want you to just consider the ECRs or early career researchers who are listening to this podcast. And what advice would you give to them? Very brief piece of advice. You'd go into them if they were coming into the field today. Catherine first. Sure. Um, that's a great question. So I think um, a, a few things perhaps. So first to identify um, a problem that you feel very strongly that uh, there, there's a solution there for. 
Um, and by that, whether it's, you know, a specific protein or a mechanism um, or, a, you know, an implementation challenge, whatever your area of expertise is, um, to really target that problem. Um, and also to ensure that you're, you're working with um, great mentors who can advise you, give you feedback on your grant proposals, things like that. People who've been very successful in, in hitting the milestones that are important for an early career researcher. Um, I think it's also really important, aside from the sort of academic or the scientific focus, to make sure that you maintain a part of your life that is separate from your work. Uh, I think it can be very all-consuming at times, especially in those early career years where you might be working towards tenure or, you know, really uh, ambitious aims or, you know, trying to carve out your first big projects that you're running independently. Um, it is important to, to make some time for life in there as well, whether it be with family or friends or just something for yourself. I think a lot of early career researchers can kind of get lost in that. So, um, you know, trying to target something specific um, that that's just yours above and beyond. Um, hopefully, hopefully that's helpful. <laughs> I know, and especially the bit about work-life balance, honestly. Some people really do need to hear that and look after themselves. And George, your advice? Yeah, well, just to continue the work-life balance theme, um, I, I always got, especially as a PhD student, PhD student I, I often saw an example of sort of, reinforcing um, attitudes that academia required total and absolute dedication that if you weren't working weekends and evenings you weren't doing it right um, that's rubbish <laughs> and you know, it's just not true and and don't get drawn down that path because it's not health it's not healthy it's not productive and it's not needed I think if you're if you're organized enough with your time, um, it shouldn't be this, you know, life-consuming uh, uh, career. It doesn't have to be at all. And Catherine's absolutely right to make sure that, you know, work-life balance is maintained. Um, I think just for my field, just for ECRs in cognitive neuroscience, I think, I think you're lucky because I think the employment opportunities you will have in 10 years' time or five years' time um, are going to be very different and broader, perhaps, than when I finished my PhD. I think the role of industry and health technology companies in, in, uh, in employing PhD students and furthering research, I've seen that really start to kind of explode in cognitive neuroscience. And I, I don't think that was really there 10 years ago, and, um, or it was just starting. And I think, I find that exciting. I like that. I think it's good that um, you can potentially finish a PhD and have, have a, a range of different places to go and work and you don't have to just stay in academia necessarily if you want an exciting career in, in research. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation, but I think we're going to start to wrap it up now. But I need to say, if anyone's watching and or listening and they feel like they would like to host a podcast on a whatever area of um, neuroscience they want, then that's fine. Or dementia that they want, that's fine. Or if they want to be a guest. So please contact um, Dementia Researcher. Um, also, I'm looking here. There's also plans for a new series where mentees 
interview they're very inspiring mentors and so if that's something that you'd want to be involved with have a think about who's inspired you or who continues to inspire you and who would agree obviously to be interviewed by you as well that's got to happen um so so yes in the meantime i'd like to thank both my guests Catherine Bornbaum and George Stotthart who've been absolutely amazing and it's been really really fun to hear about your research and I've really enjoyed hosting today so thank you very much cheers thank you Amanda thank you I'm Amanda Hesselgrave and you've been listening to the dementia research podcast please remember uh, leave us a review and let us know what you thought about the show thank you Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Race Against Dementia and the Alzheimer's Association. Bringing you research, news, career tips and support.